This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. Morning, everybody. You know, I, I was wondering if you would um, if you would take a moment with me and remember people half a world away um, who are really struggling. And we are Christians. We know that Christians around the world are persecuted. Um, I think it's important for us to recognize it's not always just Christians. Those are still our fellow brothers and sisters, our fellow human beings. And so let's take just a moment to pray. God, we pray for those families in New Zealand and Uh, unfortunately, other places around the world who are grieving today because of terror, because of hatred, because of bigotry, because of, of all sorts of issues that you transcend and that you give us the ability to transcend. And yet sometimes we fall so far short. God, we pray for those families. Would you be near to them today? We pray for the leaders of those mosques. Would you be near to them today? And uh, God, would you bring your healing hand and your comforting hand? And would you put it on those families as they deal with unspeakable grief today? And God, we long for the day when you set everything right. But between now and then, would you help us to remember your promise that even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we don't have to be afraid because you are with us. And we're so grateful for that. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, I I hope you are going to be like me. I am... I went a little light on breakfast because I am counting on some very good corned beef and cabbage today. Yeah, my apologies to all of you vegetarians and vegans, all right? Enjoy the cabbage, okay? All right. But as for me and my house, we're going to eat the corned beef as well. So there you go. Um, It's, you know, every day that we're alive is a great day, isn't it? Yeah, life is such a wonderful gift from God, even on our toughest days. And uh, for those of you who are brand new, uh, Elise introduced me as Ron, and I'm on the teaching staff of our church, and for the next 25 minutes or so, I'm going to be teaching us uh, some really important things, and then we have a surprise at the end I think you're going to really enjoy. So you can just say a silent prayer for me right now that I can finish early, all right? Because that would be a minor miracle if, yeah, thank you. All right, here we go. We are in the middle of a series. Actually, this is teaching number three in a series called The Bible for Grownups. And really what we're doing is we're taking a look at the backstory of the Bible because we understand that if we don't understand the backstory, if we don't know the backstory, we're likely to misunderstand the story like anything else in life. If you don't know what leads up to it, 
you're liable to misinterpret or misunderstand what's actually going on in that particular point in time. And one of the surprises that we have noted is that the story of how we got the Bible didn't actually begin with creation. The story of how you and I got a Bible, and if you own one, this happens to be one of mine, if you own a Bible, the story of how we got this book does not begin with creation. The story of how we got this book actually begins with Jesus' resurrection because Jesus' resurrection tipped a domino that tipped another one. You've done that before, right? And it set a whole thing in motion. And I can safely tell you that if Jesus hadn't raised himself from death, then no one would have felt compelled to actually record the story of his life. He would have been just like every other exceptional human being who did a lot of good during his or her life, but they died just like every other human being and they stayed dead. And guess what? The Jews would have kept their ancient manuscripts and just for the sake of those of you who are new or maybe unfamiliar with the Bible, um, the Bible is divided into two sections. The larger section was written first. It was written by Jews for Jews, and they kept it to themselves. This was written before Jesus. This was written after Jesus. This was written by Jews for Jews. This was written for the entire world. Now, the interesting thing was, no one had this except for the Jews until well after Jesus came. Because the Jews were a little different group. I'll get to that in just a little bit. But there would not be a Bible that you and I would hold in our hands. Because even the Jews hadn't put this together in a book yet. Yeah. It's very safe to say, if you study the history of how we got the Bible... If Jesus hadn't raised himself from the dead, no one would have documented his life. There would be no Christian churches. The Jews would have kept their sacred manuscripts to themselves. The rest of the world would never have cared, and the whole history of the world would be different. So what are these dominoes that when Jesus raised himself from, from death, what are the dominoes that it tipped? Well, here's a few of them. First of all, it launched the I Saw Him Too movement. And I did a little research into this, and I found out that there were more than 500 people who saw Jesus alive after he died. They ate with him. They visited with him. His body looked exactly like it did, except for the scars from the crucifixion in his hands and in his feet. They laughed with him. They did all sorts of things with him. Now, over 500 people, let's just assume that each of those 500 people had a sphere of influence of about 20 people. That means 10,000 people either saw Jesus or, who, or, or had a best friend who did. And in the nation of Israel where the church got started, probably a population of about a million, okay, in the whole country. Now think with me just for a minute. If there are 60,000 people that live in Petaluma, think about this. The ratio of 10,000 to a million, the same ratio in Petaluma would be 600. 
hundred people either saw Jesus or had a best friend who did. What do you think that would do in our community? Turn it upside down, right? Crazy. They saw a dead man walking. Now, the interesting thing is, when you see a person and you see them crucified and you watch them die, a very painful death, and when you see their body taken down from that cross and you see it put in a body bag and you see it carried to a tomb and you see it put in the tomb and you see the tomb sealed and you know it was sealed day one, day two, day three, but somewhere in day three, the seal is broken from the inside, and now you are talking and visiting with this person. Ha. Huh. When that person tells you that he is God in human flesh, you have a tendency to believe that, don't you? And when they tell you that they are the one and only God come to earth as the Savior of all mankind, you have a tendency to believe that. And get this, when they tell you that in the same way they raised themselves from death, that if you trust them and put your faith in them, when you die, they will do the same for you. And they will take you with them to live forever in paradise. How good does that sound? You have a tendency to believe it all. And that was all wrapped up in the I Saw Him Too movement. And it triggered a massive worldwide shift from many gods, the belief in many gods, to the belief in only one God. In fact, last week, uh, I took some time to document prior to Jesus raising himself from the dead, 99% of the world, 99% of the world believed that the world was created or somehow the playground or the territory of a multitude of gods and they fought over the territories and you and I were caught in the middle of the battle and it was our job to try to keep all those gods happy. Many gods today, post the resurrection of Jesus, only about 28% of the people in the world believe in many gods the largest theological shift in human history started when God raised himself from the dead. There's a couple of other things. For the first time ever, people felt compelled to document the life of this, of this God who raised himself from death. And so person after person after person started writing these manuscripts in which they researched the life of Jesus or maybe they were a personal eyewitness of his entire life and, and they took pen in hand and they began to document the life of Jesus. And then these churches sprang up all over the world and leaders felt compelled to write some instructions to these Jesus followers that were part of this I Saw Him Too movement so that they would know how to actually worship this one and only God. And so they documented his life, his resurrection, and his claims. And guess what? These Jesus followers became very interested in the manuscripts that Jesus quoted from as he taught. And those were 
the 39 manuscripts that were written before he was born. They became very interested in those because, well, I'll show you why. They were the only, they were the only teachings anywhere on the face of planet Earth that talked about monotheism, the belief in one God. There were no other documents. And since Jesus claimed to be the son of the one and only God, and he claimed to be God in human flesh, they wanted to know all they could about this one God because they traded in this whole pantheon of gods that they kept trying to keep happy for this one God who created the heavens and the earth and who promised to give them life after death. And the only manuscripts in the world that talked about that God were the ones the Jews had. They became very interested in that. But here's where the plot takes an interesting little turn. These non-Jewish Christians, they adopted the Jewish manuscripts as Scripture, their Scripture. They actually took those 39 ancient manuscripts and they recognized there was something very divine about them and they accepted them as their own sacred scripture, but they rejected the Jewish religion. And that's sort of interesting. So they took the Jewish scriptures, but they didn't take the Jewish religion for eh, at least three reasons. Number one, In 70 AD, which was about uh, less than 40 years after Jesus died, the Romans came in and physically destroyed the Jewish temple, literally knocked it to the ground, burned it, destroyed the city of Jerusalem, and killed about a million Jews in the process. And there was only a handful, just, just maybe... The, the estimations vary anywhere from 20,000 to 50,000 Jews left in Israel at the end of that. And the religious, Jewish religious leaders were having a difficult time figuring out how do we carry on our temple-based religion without a temple? That'd be a little challenge, wouldn't it? Yeah. So they were having trouble figuring that out. So these, Jew, these non-Jewish Christians, they, they weren't all that interested in joining a religion that didn't even have a temple of its own. Secondly, these Jewish religious leaders often joined with the Romans in persecuting the Christians. So these, these non-Jewish Jesus followers certainly didn't want to join a religion that was persecuting them. And then last of all, they didn't want to become Jewish. No offense to anyone who's a Jew, okay? But I can tell you, especially in that day and age, those Jews were odd ducks. One day a week, they wouldn't work. There were certain foods they wouldn't eat ever. They didn't want to mix it up with Gentiles. They wouldn't marry anybody except their own kind. They wouldn't let their own kids marry anybody else. They lived in these tiny little enclaves no matter where they were in the world and they wanted nothing to do with anybody else. Well, the people who became Jesus followers looked at that and went, that's not for me. You know, if you're born into that, that's one thing, but please don't put that on me. So they accepted the Jewish writings as scripture 
but they completely rejected the Jewish religion. We'll get into that in a minute, why they did that as well. Their interest in the Jewish scripture wasn't historical. They could care less about whether Moses led the people of Israel through the Red Sea. Made no difference to them. None of their ancestors were in that gang. It made no difference to them that there was a king by the name of David or a king by the name of Saul. It made no difference to them that there was a judge somewhere that lived in ancient Israel by the name of Samuel. They did not go to the Jewish scriptures because they wanted to learn Jewish history. They weren't Jewish. They didn't go to the, these, these 39 books written before Jesus for theological reasons. They understood that these 39 books that were written before Jesus were written by Jews for Jews in order to prepare them for the coming of Jesus. But they weren't theologically for the followers of Jesus. They understood that. Their interest, I'm going to give you a new word, was Christological. Are you impressed? <laughs> you know what that means. They actually went to these 39 ancient manuscripts and what fascinated them was they saw predictions of Jesus throughout all 39 of them. It was amazing. It seemed like page after page after page would, talking, would talk about the coming of the Messiah that they understood to be Jesus. They could find predictions of how he would die and predictions that he would be buried. And they found predictions that he would be raised from the dead. They found predictions about what his life and ministry would be like. They found all kinds of predictions about where he would be born. They found predictions about what actual tribe he would come from. There were all of these, these uh, identifying markers, and they all pointed to Jesus. And they saw him everywhere. So it was easy and natural for them, even though they were not Jewish, it was easy and natural for them to recognize that there was something divine about these 39 manuscripts and to actually adopt them as their own scripture. But there were some challenges, and those challenges remain for you and me today. Because, well, let's just get down to brass tacks. What about the barbaric nature of the Old Testament? Ever had anybody ask you that? I've had so many people ask me that. What about the barbaric nature of the Old Testament? Isn't there some wacky stuff in there? Now, in his book, The God Delusion, Richard Dawkins, who is, a, who is a, one of the world's premier atheists, here's what he says. Judaism is a tribal cult of a single fiercely unpleasant God morbidly obsessed with sexual restrictions. I would say... That is not exactly an endorsement, would you? Yeah. Interesting. Are there sexual restrictions in the Old Testament in those 39 documents that were written before Jesus? The answer is yes. In fact, if we went to Leviticus chapter 18, we would find 17 specific sexual 
restrictions. Does that sound restrictive, yes or no? 17 of them. Yeah, that sounds very restrictive. And that's exactly what Richard Dawkins had reference to when he talked about some God who seems to be morbidly obsessed with sexual restriction. So I went to Leviticus chapter 18, where those are, and I discovered some interesting things. First of all, there are 17 forbidden sexual practices. Okay? Secondly, I discovered that the Egyptians practiced all 17. Now, I'm going to back up the slide for a minute because I don't want you to read the rest of it. Because I have to tell you some of the backstory so that you understand something because this is one of my favorite things about God. If you can imagine a God who knows everything and a God who has a desire to help you and me step into life that is abundant and amazing and that blesses us and blesses the people around us. The difference between what he knows and what we know is incalculable. And the great thing about God is He's always pulling us forward, always pulling us forward. But listen, never faster than we can go. He always accommodates to our capacity. So I've been a Christian, a Jesus follower, 52 years. No, no, my math is wrong. I know, I know, 56 years. Okay? And the amazing thing about God, in those 56 years, God has always been pulling me forward. Not, not, not yanking me forward. Not behind driving me forward. But he's always been inviting me forward. And you know something? I'm still on a wonderfully vertical learning curve after 56 years. And he's never once taken me faster than I could go. He's been amazingly patient with me. That is the story of the God who created the heavens and the earth. Now, let's go back to the story of this ancient nation of Israel. For 430 years roughly twice the age of the United States of America, the the Israeli people had been living in Egypt. That was their culture. That's all they had ever known for 430 years. And the Egyptians worshipped this whole pantheon of gods, this whole vast array of gods, and the Israelites, that's the culture in which they were born. And so they worshiped all these gods, and they, and they lived pretty much like Egyptians lived. Now, now think about this for a minute. All 17 of the restricted sexual practices that God mentions in Leviticus 18, all 17 of them, the Egyptians regularly practiced. They were considered normal in their culture. Hmm. 
Now let's go back here to the last one. Fifteen of those 17 are either illegal today, most of them are, or they are heavily frowned upon by virtually every country in the world. How about that? Things like, don't sleep with your father's wife. Hello. (laughs) Somebody had to write that? (laughs) Did you know that that was a regular practice? Of the Egyptians? Don't, don't sleep with a dog or a horse. Somebody had to write that? Yep. Yeah. The Egyptians regularly practiced that. I won't, I won't go through and read all the rest of them to you. Uh, but you know something? It really begs a question. Was God really morbidly obsessed with sexual restriction or was he just 3,500 years ahead of all the rest of culture? I think he was 3,500 years ahead of all the rest of culture. He was actually pulling, gently pulling his people to a much better moral code that now pretty much the whole world recognizes. Huh. What about the slaughter of the nations? Because as the story goes, God took the nation of Israel out of Egypt, led them through the Red Sea, through the wilderness, and they went up to what they called their promised land, which is the which is the land that we today call Israel. And God said, I'm going to take you in and you're going to drive out the inhabitants of the land. And in the process of driving out the inhabitants of the land, they actually killed thousands of them. What about that? Doesn't that seem barbaric? Well, I would agree with you on the service it does. Let's poke into that for just a minute. And in order to understand how that works, you have to understand how God views injustice and how he responds to injustice. And I would say particularly how he responds to egregious injustice and egregious to the point that involves the murdering of people. That's a pretty serious injustice, correct? Yeah, that's why we prayed this morning. That's a very serious injustice. So let's go to the very first big injustice ever recorded in Scripture. It's on page four in my Bible, so we're not very far in, right? There's only four people who live on planet Earth, and one of them murders another. You know, that dude killed 25% of the world's population in one shot. I'd say that's pretty egregious, all right? The story is Cain and Abel, and Cain got jealous of Abel and mad at him, and they were in a field one day, and he took some instrument and killed him, and then he buried him. I want you to see what God said. God said to Cain, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Just write this down in your notes somewhere. Injustice, every form of injustice cries out to God. For some sort of action. You got to make this right. 
So when you understand that there's something inside of God, and oh, by the way, do you think he heard? Yeah, he did. He could hear Abel's blood crying out to him to do something about it. I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt that God sits in heaven today and the blood of those 50 people killed over the weekend cries out to him for him to do something to make that right. And he hears it. Every single person who's ever been murdered, he hears it. But God has a sense of justice that's also balanced with his patience and love. And if God took action every time we treated someone unjustly, you and I would come to church battered and bloodied and looking terrible every week. Because if God punished you for every injustice that you and I did, we'd look pretty bad, wouldn't we? Yeah, we all would. So God doesn't do that straight up all the time. In fact, we get a little insight into this and we go back to uh, God talking to Abraham. And this was some 400 years prior to the, the nation of Israel walking out of Egypt to go in and drive these people out. And God said to Abraham, you know something? Your children, your ancestors are going to go from this land. And Abraham was standing in what we call Israel today. And he said, your children and your descendants are going to go from this land and they're going to go down and they're going to live in Egypt a long time. And eventually they're going to fall into slavery there. And they're going to be in slavery for four generations. Father, son, grandson, great-grandson. And then after four generations, your descendants will return right here to this land. So why didn't God just give it to him then and just drive out all the inhabitants then? God gives us a hint. For the sins of the Amorites, those were the people living right there, the sins of the Amorites do not yet warrant their destruction. God knew what they were going to become in 400 years, but it would have been a violation of his justice to drive them out right then. And in fact, as we, as we fast forward from what he said to Abraham here to 400 years later, notice how this gets fulfilled. God says, because now the entire land has become defiled. I am punishing the people who live there. I will cause the land to, and that's a pretty vivid picture, isn't it? I will cause the land to vomit them out. Ha, huh. right. So it's not God being barbaric. It's not God indiscriminately just choosing to zap some people. It's God taking care to make sure that the world doesn't become too evil. Ha, huh. that should give you a little comfort when you turn your TV on tomorrow. And you wonder, do you ever wonder if the world's becoming too evil? Of course you do. I do too. I'm comforted to know that God lets it get only so far. And then he's going to do something. And then we can have peace. So here's what I would say to you. We don't need to apologize or redact the stories in the Old Testament. Not at all. 
God is simply taking action to keep the whole world from self-destructing through sin. It is an accurate story of God working to keep the world somewhat in balance and to prepare it for the coming of Jesus. And the cool thing is God waded right in to the fray of human history when he came to earth. And here it is. God waded into the fray of human history and played by the rules of the kingdoms of this world. It's why Jesus kept every single one of the commandments that God wrote to the Jews. That was his rules for, the, for that kingdom of this world. He kept them all. He played by the rules so that he could usher in a kingdom that's not of this world. And that's the good news of Jesus. Let's take a look at this shortly as we close. First of all, it's important to understand that all throughout these 39 manuscripts that God wrote to the Jews, he was predicting not only Jesus, but something Jesus would do. And 620 some years before Jesus came, the prophet Jeremiah wrote, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. And all the Jesus followers understood that the old covenant, which we now call the Old Testament of the Bible, the old covenant was an agreement between God and the Jewish nation. Always had been. That's all it would ever be. It was a covenant God made with the Jewish nation. But even in that old covenant, there was a prediction that this is not an eternal covenant, that God's going to make a new covenant. And isn't it interesting that on the night before Jesus was crucified, when he sat with his 12 uh, apostles eating the Passover meal, which we commonly call the Last Supper, in that last meal that Jesus ate with them before he was crucified the next day, here's what he said. This cup is the what? New covenant. In my blood, which is poured out for you, that new covenant, no one knew what it would be like, and no one dreamed that the new covenant would be purchased by the life of God himself as his blood spilled out on the ground. And just a few minutes ago, you and I took in our hands a piece of bread that represents the body of Jesus. And we took on our hands a cup filled with juice that represents the blood of Jesus. And we said, as we ate the bread and we drank the cup, we were in essence saying to Jesus, I'm part of that new covenant. Amen. See, the good news of Jesus is this. The gods don't have to be placated. This massive array of gods no longer has to be placated. You don't have to go to certain temples and offer certain sacrifices and pray certain prayers to try to keep the gods happy or at least somewhat okay with you. You don't have to do that anymore because the one and only God who made you already loves you. How about that? And he made a way for you to be adopted into his family. And that's why we get together every Sunday. We celebrate the fact that God loves us. The worship band is going to come and sing. 
And, and I just want to, I, I want to say two things to you. They're going to sing a song, and, and it is this teaching in a nutshell. The song says, somehow he wants me. Somehow this God who made the heavens and the earth and this God who created you and me, for some reason beyond what I can imagine, knowing who I am and knowing the things that I've done, somehow, in spite of all of that, somehow he wants me. And somehow that frees me. If you're not a Jesus follower yet, I'm so glad you're here. Because you're hearing the baseline good news that Jesus came to give. I would invite you. No, he would invite you. Hey, become one of my followers, Jesus would say to you. Trust me with your life. Follow me. That was his most common invitation. Follow me. And I will give you abundant life here and eternal life after death. If you are a Jesus follower already, I want you just to close your eyes and think, in spite of what you've done after becoming a Jesus follower, he still wants you. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.